Majesty, it's page 1158. One Corinthians seven, verses ten to sixteen. To the married, I give this command: not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The next reading is on page 1024. 1024, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pauline. Um, you might like to have that uh, second reading from Mark 10 uh, open in front of you. 
Uh, let's, let's pray as we reflect on this. Oh Lord, you, you know the pain that there is in this room right now because of marriages that have ended badly, bad experiences. You know the fear, the anxiety that's in our hearts just hearing these words of Scripture. And yet, Lord, you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that you won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on us that isn't ultimately for our good. And so we, we say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen. So we are doing a short um, mini-sermon series all about a biblical vision of love and marriage uh, and I begin this message like last week's with uh, some fear and trembling and trepidation because I know that a good number of you here today have experienced the pain of divorce firsthand. And I have no intention of uh, hurting anyone. I, don't, I, I love you all. I don't want to hurt anyone with anything that I might say. I know that some of you, for some of you, those wounds that you're carrying are still very, very raw. Others, perhaps there's been more time for healing. For some of you uh, who have gone through divorce, that might have been your initiative. For others, it might have come upon you, thrust upon you, out of the blue, from nowhere. And so, I want to try and make clear from the outset this morning that I can't speak to the particular ins and outs of every situation that's in this room. Uh, each is unique, just as each marriage is unique. What I want to try and do, though, is just try and paint some broad brushstrokes as to what I think a biblical understanding of divorce and remarriage looks like, and then try and uh, help leave you to work things out from there. And the second bit of throat clearing is that some of you, I, I imagine, um, may well hear some of what uh, we're thinking about this morning, and in the light of it, feel some either guilt or shame of... Uh, about some of the circumstances about a previous marriage breaking up. And so let me say two things up front straight away. First of all, that isn't my intention. Um, I just want to try and reflect on what Jesus and the biblical authors have to say about divorce and try and get inside their, their mindsets, their worldview. And second, I also just want to encourage us that even if the Holy Spirit convicts us that we were at fault for the breakup of a marriage against God's will. It isn't the unforgivable sin. Uh, even in that worst case scenario, there is always more grace in Jesus than sin in us. Always. Doesn't matter what we've done. And we also need to try and differentiate between shame and guilt. See, guilt has to do with me doing something wrong. But, guilt, uh, but shame has a sense of, I'm a dreadful human being. Now, some 
some of those who have experienced the pain of divorce here, some of you fought for your marriages and your spouse just wasn't interested. It takes two to tango. And irrespective of where... You, you, and if that's, if that's the case, there's no, there's no guilt in that. There's no, if you tried and the other half isn't willing to, to make that effort, that, you can't do any more than that. You can't force someone else's response. But irrespective of where responsibility for, for any divorce lies, and, and very seldom is it ever 100%, 0%, but irrespective of where responsibility lies, what I want everyone to hear, everyone, is that being a divorcee does not make you a lesser person in God's eyes. And, and in, my, in my notes, that's capital letters, underlined, bold, italics. Okay? That's really important for all of us to hear. God loves us. And so, with all of that said, let's just, let me just remind you, like last week, that the goal is to try and have a, a, a mindset, a worldview that's shaped by the Bible. And so, let me also start with this disclaimer. I know uh, lots of long introductions like last week, but I know that what Jesus has to say about divorce and remarriage is radically countercultural. I know that it is going to sound crazy and harsh and strict. And I'm not expecting this to land comfortably. In all honesty, I think if it did land comfortably, I'd probably be doing some gymnastics with the text to make it say something it doesn't say. And so the, the task before us today isn't, that, isn't to try and make Jesus say whatever we want him to say, but to try and attend to what Jesus actually does say and understand, try and understand how his way really is the way of full and lasting joy, even if it doesn't look like that on the surface to us. You know, there are, there are lots of things that I wish the Bible didn't say. Things about money and how to use money. Things about uh, the necessity of suffering. Things about needing to take up our cross and follow him. I wish that the Bible didn't say lots of those things. In the same way, I kind of wish that I didn't have to pay taxes, but being a citizen of the United Kingdom kind of means that I do. And if I decide unilaterally, I don't think that's what the law means. I've got a feeling HMRC might just take a different interpretation. So I, wanna, I, want, I want to say from the outset, it's okay to find Jesus' teachings hard, because they are. But what I don't think we're at liberty to do as followers of Jesus is to disregard what he says and says, say that he says something else. I don't think we can do that faithfully. Otherwise, we're kind of making, uh, worshipping a made-up Jesus rather than the Jesus that's presented to us in the Bible. And therefore, I want to encourage us to bear in mind the words um, of St. Ignatius of Loyola that we uh, had heard last week. That sin is unwillingness to trust what, that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I really, truly, honestly believe that what God wants for us 
is for our good, even if we might struggle to understand how it could be. And I believe that's true in this area of life as it is in every other. And I really uh, want and hope and pray that we could all believe that more today as well. So here, here in a nutshell, a summary is, uh, of what I think we'll see in this Bible, about the Bible's understanding of divorce and remarriage, especially through the, the lens of Jesus' teaching in, in Mark 10. That God intends marriage to be a lifelong union, but has permitted divorce in certain exceptional circumstances as a concession to human sinfulness. So what I propose to do then is to break down this sermon into three sections. First, I want to explore what it is that God wants from marriage, i.e. that his will let it be lifelong. Second, uh, that um, I want to explore how Jesus sees the question of divorce and remarriage in relation to that vision, i.e. That, that God can permit something that he doesn't ultimately want. And finally, I want to finish by drawing out some practical applications and what this might mean for us, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, wherever we are this morning. So, let's start at the beginning. What God wants. Simply put, God wants marriages to last. And that's abundantly clear from the way that Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question about whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. So in verses 6 and 7, Jesus joins together two quotations, one from Genesis 1.27 and one from Genesis 2.24. And then he concludes in verses 8 and 9. So they, husband and wife, are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the point seems to be this, since God is the one who joins husband and wife together in marriage, as we looked at last week, he is the only one who has the, the right to end a marriage, i.e. through the death of one of the partners. In other words, no human should seek to undo the one flesh union that God has performed. Marriages are not just human partnerships, they are spiritual, they matter to God. God wants marriages to be lifelong. I think, hopefully, that's clear enough. But the disciples, once, they've, once they have Jesus to themselves, they want a bit more clarification. And so in verse 10, uh, we see this. When they, they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And Jesus responds by saying that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, I realize these are really strong words. But the gist of them seems to be that husband and wife are bound to each other for the entirety of their earthly lives. In other words, God isn't bound by our definitions of divorce. A person's marriage being terminated in the eyes of the law is not the same thing as a person's marriage being terminated in the eyes of God. And what Jesus calls adultery, I think here in, 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 these, in these passages, is a new marriage when the first marriage wasn't ended in a way that is valid in God's eyes. And we'll come to that in a little bit. So I, I, I realize that there's a lot... Uh, a lot of questions that will, that will come from that. But what I think that means is that 
there is a, there is a kind of new marriage where God doesn't recognize the first one as actually having ended. Uh, and as hard as I know that this will be for many of us to either understand, let alone stomach, I think this also underscores what I tried to explain last week, that there is a kind of a divine biblical worldview that's kind of different from our secular cultural worldview. And the same reality can be understood in different ways depending on what, uh, what our frame of reference is. And what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that God isn't subject to the laws of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So just because a person is in possession of a decree absolute uh, from the United Kingdom of Great, Great Britain and Northern Ireland doesn't mean that that decree absolute is recognized in God's heavenly courtroom. According to Jesus, and I hope you can see that these are, the, 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 these are Jesus' words, it's possible to be a legally separated adulterer. And so Jesus' teaching represents the death of easy divorce. Why? Because as we discussed last week, marriage is ultimately meant to be a signpost to Christ's relationship to the church. Christ never gets bored and runs off with a younger woman. Christ never breaks his covenant promises. Christ never leaves his bride, even if she is unfaithful to him. Uh, if you want to see that played out, go read the book of Hosea. When Christ sets his affections on us, he goes looking in the red light district. That's what the book of Hosea is all about. And in Hosea 11, God says with one breath, my people are determined to turn from me. And then with the next, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? There is that tension. And so I, I just want to, to, to observe that it isn't a trouble-free marriage between Christ and the church. If he ran when the going got tough, none of us would be here now. And so the first thing I think is just we need to celebrate God's faithfulness to us in light of our unfaithfulness to him. But this brings us on to the second point of what God allows. So the second thing we see in this reading from Mark 10 is that while God intends for marriages to be lifelong, he recognizes that excrement happens. A few of you got that, okay, good. God knows what we're like. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He isn't surprised by our infidelities. And, and that's not at all to say that he endorses our infidelities, but he isn't thwarted by them. After the flood in Genesis 8, uh, verse 21, God looks at humanity, and he, th and he might expect him to think, ah, oh, perfect, starting all over again, brand new start. Is that what he says? No, he says... He looks at humanity and sees that every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And yet, he determines still to work with us and accommodate himself to us in our weakness. 
And that is what divorce is, Jesus explains. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law permitting divorce. Divorce is a concession. It's not the original plan. And so what's so striking about Jesus' reply to the Pharisees' question is that he rebukes them for missing the point. You see, they're getting hung up on the details of divorce, but they've failed completely to recognize that divorce was never part of God's original plan. God doesn't want divorce. Divorce is never God's will in the sense that his heart is only ever always inclined toward the permanent, faithful, exclusive, lifelong union of one man and one woman. In other words, Jesus is saying, if we're spending our time arguing about who can get divorced and when, we've already lost the battle. Because we should be aiming for the, and uh, working for the establishment and preservation of lifelong marriages. Not spending all of our time and energy working up contingency plans for when they don't work. Divorce, Jesus says, is a concession to human sinfulness. God allows it, but it isn't what he wants deep down. And theologians often make a distinction between God's sovereign will and God's permissive will. Put simply, God's sovereign will is what God wants to happen, while God's permissive will is what God allows to happen. And they're not always the same thing. So think of it this way. I want my children to learn how to ride a bicycle safely. But in the process of them learning to ride the bicycle, I allow them to fall off and skin their knees. Do I want them to get hurt? No. The whole reason I allow them to skin their knees is because I want them to be able to ride safely without skinning their knees. And so there can be times when these two things are in tension. What God wants, lifelong marriages. What he permits, something that seems to contradict that. And so to pr press this a little further, and you'll have to bear with me because every analogy pushed too far always breaks down, but divorce is a bit like falling off the bicycle. Sometimes, sadly, it happens. But no one aims to fall off the bicycle. At least I hope none of you deliberately try and crash your bicycle. You aim to stay on the bike. And what Jesus is saying here is that our aim should only ever be towards lifelong marriages. And like I said, don't get me wrong, I don't think anyone on their wedding day is aiming to get divorced. Most of the time when people say their vows, they mean them. Or at least I think they think they mean them as much as any of us ever have any idea what our vows mean on our wedding day. But you've got to go on aiming for them, day after day after day after day, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. It isn't just a one-time decision, but one that has to be renewed constantly. And so Jesus, I think, is saying, aim for permanence in marriage. That's what God wants. And yet God knows what we're like. When the Pharisees come to Jesus in verse 2, 
Mark tells us that they came to test him. How? They were testing his theology. You see, in Jesus' day, there was a philosophical debate going on between two schools of rabbis, the two most prominent rabbis uh, of the day. In the red corner, you had Rabbi Hillel. In the blue corner, you had Rabbi Shammai. And it was, in very crude terms, the equivalent of liberals against conservatives. And the question about divorce was a live issue in, uh, in, the, in, in Jesus' day, in the, in the Judaism of Jesus' day, much the same way as, say, same-sex marriages in the church today. And it all revolved around two schools of thought and how they interpreted the Bible. And the question that the, uh, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus with is, whose side are you on? Are you one of those Hillelites or are you one of those Shammaiites? And the controversy centered on the interpretation of Deuteronomy 21, verse 4, which says uh, that a man can divorce his wife if he finds something indecent about her. Literally, the, the Hebrew words mean el, uh, are el and it means the nakedness of a thing. So you can divorce your wife if you find the nakedness of a thing about her. What do you think the next question is? What on earth does that mean? And so David Inspadone Brewer, who's done a, a big study on this, he sums up the debate for us like this. He says, the school of Shammai say, a man should not divorce his wife except that he found in her a thing of indecency, as it is said, for he finds in her an indecent thing. And the school of Hillel say, even if he spoiled her dish, since it says, for he finds in her an indecent thing. So in other words, Hillel says, she burns the dinner, you can get shot of her. I'm not making that up. That is literally what it says. It is the kind of the no-fault divorce. You know, that is Hillel. And then you've got Shammai, who's basically said, no, adultery. That's what that means. Unfaithfulness. And so for Shammai and his followers, the nakedness of a thing is adultery. For Hillel, it could be anything whatsoever. And also, I'm afraid I just have to point this out. It's only the men that can divorce the women, I'm afraid. Now, to transpose that debate into today's character, categories, the Pharisees want to know, Jesus, are you a liberal or a conservative? The question they're asking isn't, are there any legitimate grounds for divorce in a kind of neutral, disinterested way? Rather, they're stepping into a live conversation that's already happening in the Judaism of the first century. And he's, they're asking, do you agree with the more, inter in, uh, the more lenient interpretation of Hillel, or do you agree with the, more, uh, the, the stricter interpretation of Shammai? So they're asking what he thinks about this hot-button issue. And Jesus effectively says, I agree with the stricter interpretation of Shammai. But he does so in a way that challenges both of them. So he challenges the liberals for their uh, interpretive gymnastics. 
And he challenges the conservatives for getting hung up on the concession instead of focusing on God's ideal. Now, Jesus saw himself as restoring to the fullness, uh, restoring people to the fullness of God's ideal vision for humanity, restoring the original pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. And that's what Jesus says when he responds to the question, verse 6, at the beginning of creation, God said. In other words, it's not like this at the beginning. This isn't how it was meant to be. The divorce laws of the, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament were effectively given to the people of Israel, Jesus says, as an exercise in damage limitation. They were God working with people who had proven themselves to be hard-hearted and rebellious. But Jesus' mission is to heal and soften rebellious human hearts. He's about making us once more the kind of people who don't need divorce. Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, those who are his followers should do marriage differently. They should do marriage the Eden way, as God intended, as the whole life, one flesh, lifelong union of a man and a woman. Now, let's just notice what Jesus does when he's asked about the hot, hot topic of his day. He locates it in the bigger story of the Bible. He doesn't just ask, can I find a, a couple of proof texts to back up my opinion either way? But he tries to look at the bigger picture and say, what is life all about? What does the Bible say that life is all about? When he's confronted with the controversial issue of the day, he appeals to the bigger biblical story, beginning with what God reveals about his purposes for the world and humanity in the creation stories. I do just think it's worth us taking a lesson from this, that if that's how Jesus approaches the controversial issues of his day, might we have something to learn from that? What Jesus models for us is his engage, in his engagement with the Pharisees is what it looks like, I think, to think biblically, to get inside the, the biblical worldview and allow it to get inside us. So Jesus' conclusion about divorce and remarriage is that when a man and a woman become one flesh through the marriage covenant, it reveals something unique about the image of God that's torn apart by divorce. It's like two pieces of paper that have been glued together. You can't pull them apart again without causing damage to both. So here are a couple of pieces I stuck together a couple of days ago. You get the point. Jesus is clear that the grounds for divorce can't just be anything. It couldn't be because we fell out of love. That's not what love is. Love isn't just a feeling. It's the resolute commitment to be for the good of another person. But I also think it's safe to say that for Jesus, adultery would constitute that nakedness of a thing. So Jesus makes that clear in, the, uh, when, in Matthew's version of, uh, of this same encounter, in Matthew 19. Jesus says, uh, includes adultery uh, as part of that. But that 
doesn't necessarily, I don't think, also mean that Jesus wouldn't justify divorce in other exceptional situations as well. I think the point of Jesus' teaching seems to be that divorce is allowed, but only for rare exceptions. So in, in Exodus 22, for instance, it lists abuse and neglect as legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, in that reading that we heard from 1 Corinthians 7, um, Paul says that if a non-Christian husband leaves his wife because she's become a Christian, she should respect his decision. So I don't think Jesus' intention and his response is to give an exhaustive list of all the different scenarios in which divorce may or not be permissible. Rather, I think what Jesus is saying is, I don't want my followers to get divorced. Marriage is so precious, so sacred, that I want them to take their vows with the utmost seriousness. And like I've been trying to say, I don't think that means that Jesus wouldn't ever permit divorce in some exceptional circumstances. Just that we have this conflict between what God wants and what God allows. What he wants is always for a marriage to work. But he also recognizes that sometimes, for the best will in the world, with all the effort that we might put in, sometimes they don't. And so let, let's just seek to draw things together by asking some really practical questions. First, is divorce ever permissible for Christians? So my answer is yes, I think it is even if it's never God's best for us. But that answer needs some qualifying. It may be permissible, but that doesn't mean it's desirable. It's always sinful to break marriage vows. Jesus is quite clear that marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman in the eyes of God. Marriage vows ought not to be broken. There is a difference, however, between using divorce to break a marriage covenant and using divorce to acknowledge that a marriage covenant has already been irrevocably broken. The former is a sin, the latter is not. The former is man trying to separate what God has joined together, the latter is a recognition of facts on the ground that a separation of what God has joined together has already taken place because of one of the partners' unrepentant sinning. The marriage effectively no longer exists. And so the divorce is just recognizing that. And what that means then is that, biblically speaking, it's only ever the victim who can initiate divorce proceedings. However, Jesus also makes it clear in other places that just because we can divorce our spouse if they break their marriage vows doesn't mean that we ought to. So it's significant that in the, the parallel of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew's gospel, it comes right after his teaching on forgiveness. So Peter came up to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I don't think it's an accident that that is just before Jesus speaks about divorce in the very next passage. Even when marriage vows are broken, a repentant partner can 
and should be forgiven as models of Christ's love. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, and let me also um, add a, this really helpful clarification from a, a theologian called Michael Paget. He says, repentance is not an abusive husband falling to his knees in tears to say sorry yet again and then pleading to his wife not to tell anyone about it. Repentance has three parts, an admission of sin, a plea for forgiveness, and an active pursuit of a changed life. So in other words, repentance doesn't mean someone saying, I'm sorry, and carrying on doing exactly what they were doing. That's not repentance. And so if all three of those aren't present, you've not got a repentant person. Because God's heart is for marriages to be permanent and lifelong, repentance and reconciliation should always be sought before initiating divorce. Now, of course, that, that doesn't mean that it will always be possible. Sadly, as we know, it takes two parties in a marriage. And one of those parties can try and try and try to be reconciled, but if the other one's not interested, there's nothing you can do about it. And nevertheless, Jesus... The, the followers of Jesus should, should seek reconciliation as far as it's within their power. Divorce seems to be the nuclear button. You only press it as a last resort, never as a first response. Second practical question, does Jesus permit marriage after divorce? Now, there are wiser and godlier men and women than me who take different uh, views and uh, interpretations on this, but in my opinion, I think the answer is yes, but only in very exceptional circumstances. In other words, whether the divorcee was the victim of the persistent, unrepentant breaking of their marriage vows after all attempts at reconciliation have been exhausted. Now, some people I respect highly will point to Jesus' words here in Mark 10 as an outright prohibition on all remarriage after divorce except where the former spouse has died. The reason I don't think it means that is precisely because I think Jesus is speaking into that wider, uh, wider debate that's happening in first century Judaism, that debate between Hillel and Shammai. So in other words, I think what he's doing is, is ruling out divorce for any and every reason which is what Hillel was advocating. I think it's worth pointing out as well that being free to remarry is kind of what divorce means. But like I said, this is, there are different definitions of divorce. There's a kind of God's definition, and then there's the state's definition. But it must be a valid divorce. And that's the point that Jesus talks about, uh, about a, a remarried partner committing adultery, because the because the first marriage is still valid from God's perspective. And so, as I said, I think the, the most generous interpretation that I can see for what constitutes a, a valid divorce in the scriptures has to do with a, a spouse's unrepentant breaking of their marriage vows. A, a husband or a wife may gain a legal divorce uh, for other reasons, but I don't think the scriptures give us any warrant for thinking that those other reasons are valid in God's eyes. And therefore, the remarriage may well constitute adultery. 
Which leads us to a third question, I think. What if I was divorced for a reason other than my spouse's repentant breaking of marriage vows? Does that mean I shouldn't remarry? The short answer, I believe, is yes. I think that does mean you shouldn't remarry. I think Jesus is clear that to do so would, in God's eyes, constitute adultery. Such is the permanence of that one flesh union. To which the inevitable follow-up will be, well, isn't that too great a burden for anyone to bear? Which, yes, it will be very, very difficult, and I wouldn't want to underestimate the challenge of it for a moment. But I also do believe that the grace and power of God are enough to enable a, a trusting, divorced Christian to be single for the rest of their earthly life, if necessary. Singleness, as we're going to look at next week, isn't a curse, contrary to the uh, impression that's often given by the world around us. You really can live a fulfilled, happy life without an earthly spouse, if you know you have a heavenly one. Fourth, what if I'm already married, remarried, but my divorce wasn't valid in God's eyes? I think there's... We are all. We all learn. We all grow at different different times. You know, there's, uh, there are there are distinctions that, like I said at the beginning, there are too many unique situations to be able to go into each one. Sometimes we do things that, at the time, seem good to us, and it's only in hindsight that we look back and think, "I shouldn't have done that." God knows. And as I said at the beginning. There is more, always more grace in God than sin in us. So if that happened, if we kind of remarried um, when kind of the divorce wasn't valid in God's eyes, does that mean we should separate from the second spouse? Uh, No, simply I don't think we should because I think the general principles apply that if new promises have have been made, they should be honored. Uh, I think that... The, the key is what Paul says in, uh, in Romans 6. He says, should we sin that grace may abound? By no means. Yeah, so we, we don't intentionally go out uh, seeking to, to go against God's will. But if, you know, if we've messed up, and we all mess up in so many ways, in so many areas of our life, there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is mercy. And what's more, God is able to use our less than ideal circumstances for his good Uh, for our good and his glory. He does it all the time. Uh, He doesn't just work with the perfect. He works with the messed up. He works with the the, the really confused and uh, and mixed things. God can bring good out of bad. He does it all the time. He's done it in my life all the time. Praise the Lord for that. And fifth, what are, what are some of the implications of Jesus' teaching on divorce to our, for our attitudes to marriage? So to begin with, I think it tells us that we need to invest in our marriages before they get to breaking point. Christian marriages need to see themselves as being dependent on Christian community. You lot, it should be the, the norm. We want to work towards the norm for it to, where uh, married couples are able to, to share their struggles in the Christian community, in the Christian family. Perhaps going to another older uh, married couple uh, and seeking their advice. 
They've probably gone through it before. You know marriage is just about the couple itself. It exists in and for the community. So seek help, seek advice. And that's part of the the glory, part of one of the treasures of being part of this multi-generational community called the church. Look around you. There is so much wisdom in this room. Make use of it. It's what I say when I I, uh, conduct weddings. Your guests aren't there for the free cake. They're promising to support and uphold you now in the years to come. Hold them to it. And just from a a personal perspective, from a um, uh, kind of view as a uh, pastoral minister perspective, please, 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 I beg you, there is no shame in having troubles with your marriage. Please come and speak to me before you press the nuclear button rather than after. We have all been there. And a follow-up to that is that because marriage is so important and when they go wrong, and sadly, the persistence of sin means that they sometimes will, we need to recognize the pain and distress it causes, not just to the couple involved, not just to any children that they might have, but also to the wider community, especially the church family. Divorce is always a tragedy. People shouldn't be socially shamed for being divorced. That is unacceptable. And if we're part of it, we need to repent and stop it. But as I said earlier, even a biblically illegitimate divorce, even where someone has made a horrendous mistake in their divorce, doesn't mean it's the unforgivable sin. It's not. Like any other sin, we can confess it to God, knowing that if, he, if we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's grace is such that he's prepared to forgive the destruction even of something he loves. Look at the cross. And so I just want to finish by asking, is there any good news in all of this? Yes, I believe there is. It's good news that Jesus places tight limits on divorce. Why? Because it's only in the safety of those glorious promises of lifelong faithfulness to one another, that true vulnerability, true love can be dared. Most of us have become followers of Hillel at heart. But Jesus knows that covenant promises are the basis for covenant security. It's also good news that Jesus didn't come just to to bandage our wounds or to lick our wounds. He wants to restore us to the way of life God always wanted for us. Jesus calls us to aim for Eden restored, not settle for life outside of Eden. He wants us to live as Genesis 1 and 2 people, not as Genesis 3 people. 
And what's more, it's good news that while we aim for Eden restored, it is possible to escape marriages that have ceased to become, ceased to be marriages through persistent, unrepentant sin. And Jesus' teaching is also good news because he wants to show us what true love is. True love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling deep inside, but a rugged commitment to one another, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Jesus wants to teach us if, that if, if we think love is something that we can fall into and out of, like falling in or out of bed, it ain't love. When the feelings fade, it's an opportunity to learn the lifetime of perseverance that true love is all about. The American theologian Stanley Harvass uh, observes that we always marry the wrong person. That's to say, we will always marry someone who will reflect back to us our worst selves. And they'll always change. So uh, someone once joked, uh, my wife has been married to several different men these last 30 years, all of them me. Jesus' teaching may sound hard and heavy, but I think C.S. Lewis captures the dynamic of what's at work here perfectly. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right uh, and stopping the leaks in the roof uh, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He intends to come. He's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus' strictness about divorce isn't because he hates us. It's because he's not making you a cottage, he's making you a palace. He wants you to learn to love like him. And finally, Jesus' teaching on divorce is good news because it points us to the cross. The cross speaks God's word of forgiveness over all our failures whether that's in the area of marriage or anywhere else. But more than that, it points us to the ultimate spouse who never gives up on us, who never reneges on his promises. The ultimate spouse who would do that for the sins of his bride to make them spotlessly clean and pure. Jesus' teaching on divorce reminds us that he would rather be rent in two for us than be split from us. And what's more, and I think this is just glorious, 
Because Jesus hates divorce, we can be absolutely sure that if we belong to Jesus, our destiny with him is rock solid. It is 100% guaranteed and secure for all eternity. If he is absolutely faithful, despite all of our unfaithfulness, is there a chance he's going to turn around in five years' time when you make your latest mistake and say, nah, I've had it with you? No! Isn't that good news? Maybe you don't mess up as much as I do, but I think that's glorious news. Nothing will separate us from his love. Not even our worst failures. Now that really is good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being the ever faithful, ever committed spouse that we need and long for. Thank you that with you there is always grace to forgive Thank you that your ambitions for us are are for an Eden life. Thank you, Lord, for your unfailing love. Lord, we, we lift to you this morning all those who carry the scars, whether new or old, of broken marriages, and we pray for your deep healing. I pray for those here this morning carrying with them feelings of shame or regret. Lord, would you wash them clean in the waves of your love and mercy. I pray for, here, uh, for any here this morning who are experiencing difficulties in their marriage right now. Lord, put around them wise and loving friends and counselors to support and strengthen them, that they may have perseverance for the long haul. And I pray for those here this morning who aren't married but who would like to be. Lord, would you give them courage to face the the challenges of singleness? Would you reassure them that you are enough, whether whether it's your will that they remain single or whether they should be married later on in life? Lord, you know our hearts. Minister to each and every one of us as we need. Amen.